Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Patrick Jory. I teach Southeast Asian history at the University of Queensland, Australia, and I'm co-host of this channel. For a long time, historians have tended to view the Cold War as a global ideological confrontation between an expansionist communist Soviet Union and a capitalist United States, which sought to contain communism. And this confrontation was fought out by their proxies in the third world. But in recent years, a new generation of scholars, many of them from Asian countries that were the hot battlegrounds for the Cold War, have begun to rethink this paradigm. They give much more agency to local political actors pursuing local political agendas. In her provocative new book, Indigenising the Cold War, the Border Patrol Police and Nation Building in Thailand, Shinae Hyun argues that in the case of Thailand, local political elites skillfully use the Cold War to achieve their own political ends. The book is a case study of Thailand's Border Patrol Police, a unit which was initially set up in the 1950s with the assistance of the CIA and which later developed a close relationship to the Thai monarchy. Besides promoting anti-communism, the Border Patrol Police played a key role in nation-building in the rural regions of the country. The Border Patrol Police is also notorious for its involvement in the massacre of leftist students at Tamasat University on October 6, 1976. Now, this book is hot off the press, published just a couple of months ago, and I'm so glad to be able to talk to the book's author, Shanae Hyun. Chenei is research professor at the Institute of East Asian Studies at Sorgang University in Seoul, Republic of Korea. Chenei, thanks so much for coming on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to talk about your book. Thank you for having me. Now, Chenei, you've got a great backstory. Can I start off by asking you how and why you first became interested in Southeast Asian Studies and why you became interested in the political history of Thailand in particular? It is a long story like everyone else, but let me make it short. After finishing junior years in 2002 in Seoul, I decided to take a year off to have the time to think about my future. My journey started with a short trip to China at the beginning of the year. Then I volunteered to work in an NGO in Taminaru, South India. After spending about eight months there, I went to Bangkok to get a cheap flight ticket and visa to go back to China like many other backpackers do. Then my unplanned journey from Thailand to Laos for four months began. Throughout the year, what I learned was that there was an other Asia that I never felt familiar with. I was born and raised in Korea and majored in East Asian history in my undergraduate program, but that did not prepare me to say that I know Asia. So I decided to study more about Asia. And at the time, I decided to study more about Southeast Asia, which seemed at the time physically close, but emotionally distant to me. I joined the master's program in Southeast Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 2005. My original research plan was to compare military dictatorships in South Korea and Myanmar. And in the second semester, I enrolled in Professor Catherine Bowie's political anthropology class. From the class, I learned about the October 6th massacre, which took place in Tamasa University on, in 1976. 
when I was reading about the massacre, I was really curious about the role of the border patrol police. My first question was, why were the border police were killing people in Bangkok? What was the border they were patrolling? Or what kind of border were they protecting from the enemy? These are the questions that made me want to study more about Thai history. So in a way, it was the Border Patrol Police that led me to choose Thailand, not exactly the Thailand, because I studied Thailand and I chose Border Patrol Police. No, not that way. It's the other way around. If I might say so, you approach this topic from a rather unique perspective. That is, as a scholar from Korea, a country that experienced one of the most destructive conflicts of the Cold War, I guess the first hot war of, of the Cold War, did your personal background influenced the way that you went about studying the Cold War in Thailand? Yes. Um, I think that it wasn't really a direct influence, but later I think I think more that I did have some kind of desire of studying the people who were not so prominent in the history books. So I'm from Jeju Island. I was born and raised until like my secondary education in Jeju Island. And in Jeju Island, there was a massacre which killed almost like 20% of the population of the island in 1948. And it was pretty much the similar thing that happened in Indonesia in 1965. So basically, the, the islanders were accused of being communists because they opposed the national elections that were supposed to establish a separate government in South Korea. So I, I mean, I suppose know all this history, but I didn't know until I became like fourth grade or something. And then like, you know, when my, my friend told me that, hey, I know that like, you know, your relatives were also involved in the massacre. And I was like, what do you mean? You know, and they were saying that all of us are involved, but like, you know, we never learned that from the classroom. So I was very curious about like, you know, what that happened, uh, what happened in that year. And of course, I didn't really pursue the study. I just went to my secondary education, tertiary education. And later years, when I look back, I think that I probably had the desire of like rebuilding the stories of the people who were forgotten by the history books and wanted to write about why they were silent and why they could not really speak of their own story. And they were even not really recognized as the Cold War history because it happened in 1948. So, yeah, I think that that personal background has some impact on my overall research agenda and goal. You said a minute ago about wanting to tell the story of people whose stories hadn't been told. And this comes to the issue of your fieldwork. And the fieldwork for this research, I think, is really quite remarkable. I was wondering if you could explain to the listener, especially any graduate students who might be listening, what it was like to carry out fieldwork with an organization like the Border Patrol Police on what, you know, you would probably, you know, consider quite a sensitive period of Thai history. I imagine it must have been quite sort of dangerous at times. How did you, how did you manage it? Um, that's a good question. And this is actually the question that I've been asked over and over <laughs> because most of the time that people ask me how I, as an Asian woman, could conduct research with the Thai paramilitary police. And to be honest, I can write a separate book for my research experience. And I'm not joking because I un unintentionally place myself in many dangerous situations. Please don't tell my mom. <laughs> 
Um, I conduct my field research between 2009 and 2011, which means that I was also caught in the crossfire between the Red Shirts and APC government in 2010. The conflicts in the Deep South were also still going on, so things were very difficult and complicated for me, who was researching one of the national security forces that was called to defend Bangkok and also taking rotational tours in South at that time. So, very honestly, I had to do everything by the book. I didn't try any tricks. So I, like everybody does, or maybe not everybody, I applied for the research permit from the National Research Council of Thailand. And once I got the permit, I visited the Border Patrol Police headquarters. And surprisingly, the deputy commissioner of the Border Patrol Police headquarters wrote me a letter, official letter, and that letter became like my amulet because it allowed me to pass every camp or every headquarters under the Border Patrol Police Command. So that was the first thing that I did. And I think it was only natural that the book reviewers request me to add a description of the research methods and sources. And so it's actually in the book. There I talked about two rules that worked well during my field work with the Thai or the Petro Police. One is do my homework and the other is never play dumb and never present to be a no-all person. I actually forgot to add one of the most fundamental rules, which is just to abide by the Thai regulation and common law. The police are the organization that reinforces laws to ensure peace and order of the society. So I followed what they do because I did not want to make a show. All I wanted to, <laughs> all I wanted was to write a history. So I did my homework. As a historian, I tried to locate my archives from the dusty storage rooms in the BPP headquarters and camps to the personal collections. And before visiting the BPP headquarters or camps, I read every available source on the organization, not only from the libraries, but also from personal collections that I acquired through interviews or from just regular bookstores. There are so many like police biographies or hero stories. And for every field visit and interview, I spent hours and days preparing my interview questions by checking on the personal records and historical accounts memorizing names and ranks of the people, and practicing my Thai pronunciation. My Thai proficiency actually had gotten far better during these years of field research. To ensure my safety, I carried my official research permission letter, both from the National Research Council and the Border Patrol Police headquarters, literally everywhere. And I tried to make everything official so that the BPP members would not treat me like a tourist or a visitor. Because I know that there are some, especially foreign scholars and researchers, they just bump in the camps and then they just go around and talk to the police officers. And they may get some stories or they may be able to take some photos with the police guys, but they don't really get to talk about like you know what they are doing. So. The Border Patrol Police members are kind of like familiar with this kind of experiences. So at, in the very beginning, they were kind of very cautious. But once they see the permission letter and once they know that like, oh, you know, she's been interviewing the Border Patrol Police members only like for many months. Once they know that, then they become sort of like relaxed to talk to me. And 
one of the things which I didn't plan initially, but I was allowed to do that. And, and later years, the Border Patrol Police members, they themselves helped me to set up those trips to the schools and spend nights there or in the sub-regional camps, because there I interviewed the Border Patrol Police school teachers, and I also interviewed the civic action officers. So I interviewed the people, I eat with them, I sleep in the, in the classroom or some other place, like in a tent and the school grounds. And when I have time, I would walk around and then I would talk to the students. I would talk to the villagers if it is safe to do so. And I took pictures inside. I sometimes like look at the children's book and then talk to the children in the school. Like, you know, do you like those books and that kind of things. And I also try to talk with the Border Patrol Police members as often as possible. So in that way that I could sort of like build trust and respect mutually. And on the other hand, I think that like, you know, because I was really keen on looking at the documents. So basically from day one, when I visited the National Archives and National Libraries in Thailand and Bangkok, I realized that there are many sources that I could use from there. I mean, from the established archives or library, because the Border Patrol Police itself is a very young organization. And it was founded by the CIA and the Thai military, even though it was officially formed, it wasn't, its activities were not really known until quite recently. So I just decided to do more ethnographical research. And at the same time, whenever I visited the camps or interviewed the people, I asked them if they have any photos or if they have any documents in that way that I could get a lot of primary documents from them. And yeah, I think that's how I did my research. I, I think that like, you know, I try to walk the line between not so stupid, but not so not so arrogant. Like, you know, I'm they call me Achan, but like and I have never been Achan at the time and I was not Achan at the time. So I was trying to be very cautious about my approach, my attitude and my behavior, but at the same time try to listen to what they were talking and what they want to talk to me. And even the narratives over time changed because I think that as they hear more about me interviewing more officers that they gave me more credentials, they gave me more trust. And my last interviews were far more relaxed. I was literally like, you know, joking, talking, eating, drinking, and and that's how I did my field work. Well, let's get into the content of the book. And as the title of the book suggests, the central concept of the book is indigenizing the Cold War. So could you explain to the listeners exactly what you mean by this term or concept? So in order to understand the concept of indigenization, we need to start with a critique of the conventional Cold War studies. As I told you, I was brought up in South Korea, one of the last countries that were divided by the ideological conflict at the beginning of the global Cold War or hot war. I should have known it better. So when I was studying in the United States, I was not surprised by how the Americans viewed the Cold War in Asia, such as the fight between the communists and anti-communists in the post-colonial era that led to the territorial division of the countries like Vietnam, Korea. I was also not surprised that it says the Americans were more inclined to a real politic approach where 
as the Soviet Union was far more focused on ideological causes like Leninist Marxism. I was also not very surprised by all the tragic stories around the hot wars and dictatorship in the so-called third world countries, which oftentimes were more or less due to their powerlessness. They were always regarded as the victims of the power competition between the superpowers. I was not surprised, but I could not agree. I could not agree at least two things. First of all, the global Cold War was the power competition between the United States and the Soviet Union, and the third world countries were the powerless victims of this. In other words, the Cold War was the history of the superpowers. Then what about us? Second, the Cold War was cold because the U.S. and the Soviet Union did not want to wage another world war. Oh, well, there were too many hot bloody wars in Asia. And again, what about us? To me, the conventional Cold War studies have constantly minimized the role and influence of the Asian countries that, in fact, complicated the superpowers competition and led to many unintended consequences throughout the second half of the 20th century. Now, the biggest irony is that we could blame the U.S. and Soviet Union for everything. I wrote about my experiences about the anti-U.S. protests in Korea in the preface and also wrote about the anti U.S. sentiments, very similar sentiments in Thailand in another short article, to show how the Korean anti-politicians and leaders have utilized these anti-U.S. sentiments to cover up their wrongdoings. This should be the reason why I was not surprised by how the conventional Cold War histories treated Asians as powerless victims, because that was exactly what I had learned from secondary to tertiary education in South Korea. For me, it was, and it is, the effective manipulation of Pax Americana by the South Korean anti-ruling elites. This is what I call the indigenization of the Cold War. Then what does the indigenization of the Cold War mean here? Literally, indigenization means to have the indigenous people take care of the business and work on their terms. I at first used the term indigenization as a substitute for the more widely used localization in the Cold War studies because localization has a certain nuance of meaning that the Asian political elites and agents did not have their own agenda to pursue in parallel with that of the Americans or foreign powers. By contrast, the term indigenization encourages us to carefully examine the local elite's agenda for adapting and utilizing foreign policies, ideologies, and attitudes. So let's think in the broader history. After the end of the Second World War, the United States provided ideological and financial aid to whomever desired to be on their side. And the local ruling elites, not just Asians, every local ruling elites were they were ready to utilize it to advance their own nation building and maintain their power ascendancy. Thai ruling elites did the same thing. They were not mere recipients of American modernization and Thai communist nation building programs. They have constantly pushed forward their agendas to shape American foreign policies in Thailand. 
In this regard, the term indigenization highlights the reciprocity of the process of creating and sustaining conditions for collaboration and adaptation between the United States and Asian allies. To summarize, because I found the conventional cohort studies have not paid enough attention to the voice and intention of the local people in Asia, I chose to frame the latter's involvement in the global cohort with the term indigenization. And in the book, I argue that the Asian local ruling elites indigenized the American cohort system to push forward their agenda of building a nation state where they can maintain power. The Asian local ruling elites collaborate with Americans to advance anti-communist campaigns, but to their cause, it was their agenda, and they never fought the proxy war on behalf of the Americans. And I conclude that post-colonial nation building was the goal of indigenization by the Thai ruling elites during the Cold War. So the main subject of the book is the is Thailand's Border Patrol piece, uh, the BPP. Can you tell the listeners who they are and why are they important to our understanding of Thailand's experience during the Cold War? The Border Patrol Police was formed in the early 1950s by the CIA and the Thai military, as you, as you explained. It was to be a paramilitary intelligence unit that would work for the CIA and the Thai military in the border areas. They also built, actually... The CIA and the Thai military formed two new police organizations. One is the Border Patrol Police. Actually, the name was different in the very beginning. And the other one is Police Area Reinforcement Unit, which is more popularly known as Peru. Both of the units were built in 1951, and they were merged after the Saritz coup. These were at first supposed to be the CIA's local agency of conducting the cover operation, intelligence, and also working for other projects that the United States wants to carry out in, in Southeast Asian region. But then the Border Patrol Police and the Peru were demoted after the Saritz coup in 1957 because they were the favorite and also the most elite forces that were sponsored, uh, that were under the patronage of the Pao Siano, the art rival of the Saritanarat at the time. So they were demoted under the provincial police in 1958, and then they stayed very low in order to survive the crisis. Then the Thai royal family, as well as the newly established United States Agency for International Development, USAID, became very interested about this organization, which were carrying out civic actions in the border areas. And then they popped up in 1962, and then they became the patron of this organization. So the Border Patrol Police suddenly transformed from the paramilitary intelligence unit into a civic action or rural development agency from the early 1960s. And most of the border patrol police civic actions that were sponsored by the United States agency, the USAID and the Thai royal family, in fact, became the foundation for the royal development project, which was officially launched in 1969. And over the times that border patrol police were they shifted their loyalty more to the Thai monarchy, away from the U.S. patrons, and um, eventually they became more or less the right-hand man of the Thai royal family, especially the princess mother, the mother of the Rama the Eighth and Rama the Ninth. 
Yeah, one of the things I learned from your book is that the Border Patrol Police has this very interesting and quite a lot of turning points in, in its history. It's sort of founded, as you say, in the um, in the early 1950s at a time when I, I think a lot of people today don't realise that you show in your book, the Thai police force was extremely powerful. In fact, I think from the figures that you give in your book, they actually had more people under arms than the Thai military themselves. They're also heavily, heavily armoured. Um, they had you know, machine guns and artillery. And and of course, you mentioned this, uh, the, the director general of the, of the police force, Paul Sianon, who at this time, I think you say he, he's one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful man in, in Thailand. And and you say he's sort of it's set up by the CIA in in collaboration with with the Thai government. So it's kind of like uh, you can kind of see that initial impetus from you know the US its Cold War policy. But then everything changes after that the coup, the 1957 coup, and you you kind of show that they sort of they lose their patron. The, the CIA guys have to sort of scamper out of <laughs> out of the country after the coup. Yeah, and it's, it's a very yeah. complicated situation, and they're kind of like they're almost like an orphan. And then you show this really interesting process, which fits in perfectly with your indigenization argument that having been sort of kind of set up by the CIA, they find a new patron that is the Thai royal family. It's a perfect example of indigenization. If you could, could you just say a little bit more about this period after the, the Sarit coup and how they managed to find this very you know influential patron in, in the Thai royal family, and in particular, the role played by the queen mother, the, the, the mother of King, the late King Pumipon, because uh, she has a very close relationship with the Border Patrol Police. The Border Patrol Police, like, you know, they were trained in psychological operation. They were trained on conventional warfare. Like, their training was actually far advanced compared to what other armed forces received in the 1950s in Thailand. So the Border Patrol Police was really an elite paramilitary force like at that time. But then what happened to them is that like, you know, even though they are very like, you know, skilled and they were very able, they could not do the intelligence with the people with their guns on their arm. So what the CIA and what the the Border Patrol Police devised is a civic action program, which is it sounds a little bit like weird because like civic action, it is called civic action because they are paramilitary and they are doing the civilian activities such as building schools or building medical clinics or provide free medicines or provide some like training for agricultural knowledge and technology. So the Budapest police initiated their civic actions in probably almost like the same time as they were officially became the Budapest police, which is 1954. And in 1956, people Songkram initiated a project of aiding the people. How they call it is that people far from communication and hill tribes. So under the Ministry of Interior, they initiated the committee that would work on the helping ethnic minority. And um, they assigned the Border Patrol Police as one of the main force to conduct this project. So Border Patrol Police began building schools. At first, it wasn't really a school. It was just like a facility where they can teach children, mostly the ethnic minority children who cannot speak Thai. They started like, you know, teaching, you know, Gokai, Gokai, and you know, those like Thai alphabet and like a very basic math to them. And then they expanded to build a school, which the first school was built in 1956. And then within probably like two, three years that they built about 18 schools in the northern region. From that on, then the civic actions of the Border Patrol Police expanded. 
by the time that Sarik Tanarat stage accrue in 1957, the Buddha Petroplastic Reaction Program has been expanding at least like, you know, all nine border provinces of Northern Thailand had this border petroplastic civic action programs going on. So when Sari stayed a coup and then he tried to disband the border petroplastic, other armed forces were sympathetic to border petroplastic and also sympathetic to probably like Pao, Pim Pao and Pibun factions. They were saying that, okay, there aren't the government officials, there aren't any government organizations that can work in that remote border area. So let's just let them work. You know, we can just, I mean, allow them continue working there so that like, you know, we could still utilize them instead of like disband them because they are already been working there like for many years. So they know the border areas and they know the ethnic minority people. So that's how the border, the civic action of the border petroplastic program became a sort of like a life equipment, life supporting equipment for Border Patrol Police because Border Patrol Police, they know that like Saritanara did not like them and Peru because Pao Sianon heavily armed them and Pao Sianon really made them like really prestigious armed organization, almost like his private army. So they were disarmed. And now they are working as a school teachers or they were working as a medical staff or they are working as a like community walkers in the border areas, not seen from those the people in uniform sitting in, in Bangkok. So the border patrol continued the civic action. And this is another thing that it just turned out to be that the border patrol police were already having sort of like a pretty close relationship with the Thai royal family from the mid-1950s, because the Ramadan Ice, when he returned to Thailand in 1951 after finishing up all his studies, he was still very unstable in terms of like political standing and he was kind of not so powerful. I mean, he was he might have been influential, but like, you know, he was not powerful compared to other people and uh, other politicians. And especially under the Pibun administration, he could not really exert his royal charisma. He didn't really have that royal charisma at that time because he was pretty new. And he was trying to, the Thai royal family, trying to build their image as a very benevolent people so like they worked on the charity and they were trying to be in the official ceremony but at the same time the Thai royal family tried to connect with the influential people and one of them was Pao Sianon and Pao Sianon was very keen on oh yeah I want to have the king next to me so like you know so he was also trying to be very close to Pao Sianon at, at the Thai monarchy Thai royal family so they maintained quite a close relationship from the 1950s. And after Pao Siano left for Geneva in 1957 and the Border Patrol Police was demoted on the provincial police, they were staying very low, but they continued their civic action program. And officially, the Border Patrol Police said that it was the first person, the royal Thai royal family, who actually stepped in was the royal couple. They went to Deutsche Tab and then they were getting into the Bubing Palace and the royal family's summer residence. And the king saw a group of children singing royal anthem. 
So he stepped out of the car and he asked the people nearby, who are they? And they said, oh, they are the Hmong children studying in the Bodo Petropolis school. So the king called up the Bodo Petropolis commander of that region and he asked, no, what's going on? And then he donated money. He visited the school and he donated money to the Bodo Petropolis. You're doing the work that people do not see, but people must appreciate. The same story goes to Princess Mother, officially in the Bodo Petropolis account. The first time that they met Princess Mother was 1962 in Bubing Palace in the same place. And Princess Mother was taking a walk and she was just going around the garden and she reached the back gate and she saw those guys in uniform. So she asked, who are you? And they said, oh, I'm Bodo Petropolis. And she said, Bodo Petropolis? I thought that you're military. And then she called up that commander, and it turned out that he was the Bodo Petropolis, and he was in charge of the civic action program in the area. So she was very interested at first. She was very interested about the, he explained about how poor medical condition, I mean, medical facilities that the area has because she was a nurse. So she wanted to help those people who doesn't have enough medication, proper medical clinics and things. So that's how she got involved. Later, she became really, she used to call the Bodo Petropolis look like, you know, my child. Some would say that Princess Mother in Thailand now is unofficially called Somdaya, and Somdaya itself is, was the title that the Bodo Petropolis used to call. So anyway, their relationship was so close to the point that like, you know, everybody knew that like, you know, Bodo Petropolis was the favorite force of the princess mother and later the entire royal family. So they've kind of, in a way, sort of lost their, their foreign patron, the CIA, and they've gained a new uh, indigenous patron, the, the royal family throughout the 1960s. And they've kind of taken, as you say, this sort of civic action role, particularly in the schools. Can you tell us a little bit more about what are they teaching in the schools? How are they running these schools? So the first and foremost is the Thai language. It is just because not only just the children, but also the adults in the village, they don't speak Thai and they don't even have the citizenship anyway. So they, at first, why they need people speak Thai language? Because that's how you get the information. <laughs> that's how you get the intelligence. So when the Bodo Petropolis actually the first unit who arrived and also conceived the school project was the Peru members. When they were patrolling around the border areas, they realized that they cannot collect intelligence because they don't speak their language, the ethnic minority language, and they don't, they don't understand. So they decided, okay, we should teach children, not the adults, because it takes longer time to teach the adults. So we teach children Thai language so that they will speak to us. So the Thai language is the first subject, and even today in the Bodo Petropolis schools, students are not allowed to speak their language. They are always, if they are in the school, they must speak Thai language all the time. The second thing would be like, like I said, the very basic math. It's just because those people, they didn't have the market system. They don't use money. They were still bartering food and like the necessities. They would go down the lowland to buy something, but like they didn't really know the basic math. So that's arithmetic. So um, they taught basic math. Other than that, the other thing that is 
pretty similar to the Thai schools, Thai elementary education. You learn the the three colors of the flag. You also learn Sin Laha, like something like um the Buddhist scripts, uh, precepts. They also do the Swap Mond, how do you say, praying. They also learn Thai history. But at the same time, they're in the old days, they both the Petropolis school teachers, they themselves are police members, try to show a lot of pictures, a lot of pictures of modern Thailand and show them how Thailand has been advanced while they were sort of like stuck in the past in the remote areas in that way that they could sort of arouse the, the feelings of respect and feelings of almost like aspiration among those children that they want to become Thai or they want to live in Thailand. They get to have some pride, hopefully sense of belonging to Thai nation. So these are the basic subjects in the Thai Bodo Petropolis schools in the past. The Bodo Petropolis, especially in the 60s and 70s, became experimental laboratory where lots of royal development project was tested. And since 1980s, the Crown Princess Sirinton, she launched her own royal development project in the Bodo Petropolis schools. They are in like nine, ten categories, focusing on the education, agriculture for lunch, medical training, commercial agricultural training, and those kind of things that school became a center of development, not just for the children, but also for the entire community. So these are the additional subject that was extended in during and after the Cold War. Yeah, we see during this period, the Border Patrol Police have this very interesting role. It's, as you say, obviously they're sort of an anti-communist sort of militia, but they're also, they're, they're running schools, they're involved in development projects, and, and, and they're very strong in promoting development in these, these border regions. At the same time, as you show in your book, the sort of political polarization in Thailand is deepening. In 965, the Communist Party of Thailand declare, formally declare an armed struggle at this time, there's still a you know a hardline military dictatorship. In the early 1970s, there are these these massive student protests, which lead to a this uh, brief period of of democratization from 1973 to 1976. Now, this I guess we come to the controversial part of the podcast, the the infamous massacre of uh, leftist students at Thammasat University on October 6, 1976, in which we know the border patrol police were one of the militias that were involved. Uh, for those people who, who might not know this history, can you perhaps just tell us kind of really more or less sort of what, what happened and, and why was the Border Patrol Police involved? It's a, so, <laughs> well, so um, in my book, there are five chapters and basically from chapter two to four talks about civic actions, Peru's involvement in Laos and the climax is chapter four where I discuss about the massacre they are really closely related in the sense that, like, you know, first of all, Civic Action Program focused on the five main fields of area operations. They were first education, which is still the main emblem of the Bodo Petrol Police Civic Action Programs. And they also focus on health and sanitation, community and rural development, and narcotic suppression and village security. Village security is the project that gave birth to village scout. It was one of the Buddha Petropolis members in the Northeast, Isan, Songkwan Harikun. He came up with the idea of creating the village scout as it's like a vigilante in the, in the village. You're basically having these people 
completely armed with anti-communist sentiments, anti-communist faith, and their antipathy against the foreign enemy. And here, foreign enemy includes not only the communists, but also Vietnamese or Lao or Cambodian. So like, you know, they had this like ultra-nationalist training program for the villagers. So the Border Patrol Police gave birth to the village scout. It was the part of the civic action, and I discussed in depth on chapter two and chapter four. The other one is that the Peru members, Peru has kind of like separate but relevant history to the Border Patrol Police, and it became a subunit of the Border Patrol Police in 1958. Some members of Peru remained in Thailand, but most of them, they were deployed to Laos. In 1960, it was after the Peru became the subunit of the Border Patrol Police. The founder of the Peru, very famous man, Belair, and he, the deputy commander of the Peru camp at the time, Branet Lelochai, he and the CIA station chief in Bangkok, they made an agreement with Saritanara that they will deploy Peru and some Thai army to the cover operation by the CIA in Laos. And from then on, the Peru members were the main force acting during the civil war in Laos. They were the ones who trained special guerrilla unit of Bang Pao's Hmong people. So Peru was involved in there. The Border Patrol Police in Thailand were conducting their civic action program strongly inclined to Thai royal family. They were in the 60s that they became really the right-hand men of the royal family. And the royal family became very, very attached to the Border Patrol Police Civic Action Programs. That was what was going on in Thailand. In Laos, Peru members were fighting with the communist Vietnamese that includes the Vietnamese communists and Batet Lao, the Lao communist. And increasingly, they realized that, like, okay, we are literally fighting unwinnable war here. I mean, what are we doing here? At first, Bill Lair and other CIA, the CIA chief, thought that if they prove that Peru is very capable, because they didn't doubt that they can win their cover operation in Laos will be successful. They never had a doubt. And they thought that, like, you know, if Peru successfully carries out that project, then, you know, Peru will survive. And then I, for Belair, it's like, you know, I can save my children. But then they failed. I mean, the CIA failed and the law operation failed. And the Peru, which actually, compared to any other armed forces deployed from outside of Laos, they were the force that stayed longest in Laos during over a decade in Laos. And when they were evacuating after the defeat in 1974, they were just so disillusioned. So a lot of Peru members left, actually left Peru when they, after they returned Thailand, but some of them, they remained and partly they remained because they had those pride and they had this loyalty to, to the people who trusted them so dearly throughout all these years of their hardship. So the Border Patrol Police that was directly involved and I found a record that who involved in the massacre were the Peru Special Force members. And interestingly enough, that most of them were the returnees from the war in Laos, which is, I thought it was very fascinating. And we don't know who ordered, but a couple of things we can guess, we can make a guess that like, you know, who commanded them to come and the 
Peru members and both the Petropolis members, when they involved in the massacre, I mean, probably they didn't really think that it was a massacre because for them, it was an anti-riot suppression operation. And uh, it was recorded in that way. Exactly, anti-riot suppression operation in Tamasa University in their records. And what they did was that we could end communist expansion by suppressing those people in the Tamasa University, which they assumed all communist. And even this Border Petrolist member told me in person that because after that day, all the communists in Bangkok vanished. <laughs> and I was very surprised and also interested about what he said because like, you know, there was almost like a heyday of communist uh, expansion after the October 6th massacre. But anyway, they were involved. They were called. They were called, exactly, of course. And they operated and, and then they retreated with the village scout. For the village scout, all the years, after so many years, if after two decades, even Song Kwan Harikun, he denied that, like, you know, there was a mutisam, like there was the third hand. He said, that, oh, you know, someone stole the village scout scarves and then they pretended that they are village scout. The people who were in the massacre were not exactly the village scout. But he himself actually, just after a month of that, the massacre, he was telling all these BPP commanders that never ever show village scout holding arms in front of the public. He was even giving a lecture on that. And more importantly, Jaranit Jamlap Lomla, he's one of the key figures of the Border Petropolis history. He himself did an interview in 1980, said that, oh, you know, I knew that like the Veliska were gathering into Sid and they were saying that, oh, I heard that like, you know, there were anti-royalist forces gathering in Bangkok. If they are about 10,000, then we are going to have 50,000 people gathered up in Bangkok and crush them. And Jarunit himself said that I said, just caution, caution, and you should go back. And all these evidences told me that, yes, but the Petropolis was involved. And there are other, possibly the military factions who staged coup in that afternoon might have been involved. We just don't know who gave that order. But there are so many speculations that you can make out of the story that I already provided in the book. And I just said, one of the reasons why that both the Petropolis have been so quiet about their massacre is because they know that if people recognize it was the Bodo Petropolis who were active in that massacre, who were acting as a main force, they would know that who could have been involved beyond politics. So that's why they were very quiet in their history. They don't they never talk about the, the massacre. And for me, that I had to go around um, and check many interviews and their testimonies to figure out and also to figure, I mean, to figure out who it is and also to figure out how I can talk about this. I guess I hadn't realized this before that some of these Paru guys had had, you know, combat experience in, in Laos for years, fighting communists in Laos. And that, I guess, helps us understand the extreme violence that took place on October the 6th, which, you know, everyone's sort of seen those horrific pictures. And I, I guess that is, is partly, you know, related to their, their their combat experience in Laos, fighting communists who they thought they were, you know, fighting in, in Bangkok. 
Okay, um, if we maybe just move the story on a little bit. So in 1980, Prime Minister Brehm has a change of policy and there's a, an amnesty to uh, the people who've fled to the, join the Communist Party in the jungles. And in fact, the insurgency starts to die down pretty quickly. And I guess you could say that the Cold War comes to an end in Thailand in earlier than it does in, in Europe, for example. So, so what happens to the Border Patrol Police after the end of the Cold War? Well, so... Since the Border Patrol Police were engaged, I mean, the Thai royal family were really actively and enthusiastically supporting the Border Patrol Police civic actions, and they initiated their own royal development project based on the Border Patrol Police civic actions in 1969. So the military were very, very keen about this. They were like, okay, the Border Patrol Police is coming back. <laughs> um, probably that's how they felt. They realized that they cannot suppress this unit anymore. And it was Tanom. At first, the army and the Prapat, uh, especially Prapat, he denied that like the Border Patrol Police has to be reinstated. But later, it was Tanom in 1972 that he thought, I mean, he himself is a very like a strong royalist. And he realized that he should reinstate Border Patrol Police because in that way that he can also gain favor from the royal family. So, yeah, he sort of like restored the Border Patrol Police. So the Border Patrol Police, which was under the provincial police since 1960, they became an independent organization. So there's a provincial police and there's a Border Patrol Police. They are in the same status in, since 1972. And there was a little bit of like some organizational it's almost like a cosmetic touch, but like, you know, after 1976 coup, the military gave a permission or they allowed the Border Patrol Police to join the military activities, which is, of course, noteworthy. But like, you know, the, the changes in the 1980s did not really change the nature of the Border Patrol Police at all. And like I said, the Princess Serendon, she stepped in and she took up all the jobs from her grandmother, Princess Mother Siknakarendra and so she just literally replaced her grandmother's seat and she's been working with the Border Patrol Police until today. If you see the Thai news at 8 o'clock, you will see that Princess Serindon visiting the Border Patrol Police school until today. So they are still active and the village scout is still active. These are not dead. They are still active today and they are still having their own anniversary and their own gatherings and commemorations. But the problem is that Border Patrol Police increasingly, especially when I was doing field research in Thailand, they were facing identity struggle because even in the Border Patrol Police, like in the headquarters, if you, <laughs> the mission statement says that Border Patrol Police operates as the police, military, and civilian. And they actually rotate their uniforms every day, like from police uniform, government official uniform, and the military, they have their own fatigue. So they are experiencing because it is not strange if the Border Patrol Police disband, because some of the units can be incorporated into the provincial police or metropolitan police, or some of the units like Peru, they can be just incorporated with paratroopers or air force. Some of the units can be incorporated into other, like, you know, other sections of police. So why they are still having this border patrol police, which is still undermanned and increasingly like people are, a lot of police candidates are avoiding 
to become border patrol police, even though the border patrol police still, when people vote that they are the favorite police among other type police forces, it's because I questioned why they are still there. And I think that their ambiguous identity or such a multifaceted role is unlike their own patron, that they have to operate everything always. It's They are just omnipresent. They have to be because their patron is like omnipresent. So, I mean, it is very hard to say that they are making like really notable uh, contribution or like, you know, notable public show, like presentation, like other police forces, but they are still there. It's been, it has been discussed whether they are going to disband the Border Patrol Police, but it cannot be disbanded because of the patron. I know that the book has only just come out, but have you had any feedback from maybe your informants in Thailand or your, your colleagues in Thailand as to uh, your argument in the book? No. <laughs> so far, I think that when I was when I conducted research and when I was drafted dissertation, I definitely thought a lot about like, you know, to what extent I can speak and to what extent I can write. At the time, I was really worried. But I think that the atmosphere, even in Thailand, has changed, especially after 2020, that people are talking about things that were not talked. <laughs> um, so I think that in the point, I am... I don't know. I, I I didn't really get the feedback from my own colleagues in Thailand, but um, some of them thought it was a brave work. Some of them thought that it was crazy. Um, whatever they think, I am just. I think that I I. I I think that I'm not really afraid of accusation on the contents. I would be afraid of, like, and if they were saying that, oh, your argument is wrong, and I think that it's not rational, or if it, it's not convincing, those kind of, the critique on my argument, I would be a little bit, <laughs> uh, I would be afraid, but on in terms of the contents, I'm not. It, uh, I know it must have been a, a journey, um, doing the research for the book and, and writing it, and not least getting, getting it into getting into publication, but do you have another project that you're working on and might you uh, let us know what, what it is? Yes, I do. <laughs> I'm so glad that we are moving into this question. <laughs> um, so even before I finished my doctoral dissertation, I at the time that I interviewed a couple of former CIA and former USAID officials, and I became very interested about the American Protestant missionaries and their descendants were very active in participating in the foreign policymaking establishment in the United States. And of course, some of them were very active in the CIA. Some of them were very active in other types of business and work. So from the postdoc years in Singapore in 2015, I have been working on the histories of American Protestant missionaries in Southeast Asia and their dealings with overlapping empires of Britain, China, and others. So overall, my current research project on the American Protestant missionary history 
in the borderlands of China, Burma, or Myanmar, Thailand, and Laos looks at the missionaries' collaboration and conflicts with the local rulers since the early 19th century, and how both groups became entangled in the disputes around land use, common law, and social organization, family education, and security, but most importantly, the identity. For me, their collaboration or clash and conflicts show how the imagined communities of American Christian empire faced challenges from the empires of the British and Chinese and numerous small kingdoms in the borderlands, what we call Somia. So that's been the project that I've been working on. I just published one article on that project and preparing another one. Alongside my own research project, I have been creating a network of Asian scholars in Asia focusing on the similar topic, the border making and the marginalization of the ethnic minorities between mainland Southeast Asia and China. It was just because this has to be done like multinationally, interdisciplinary. So when I was conducting research, I contacted uh, many scholars in Japan, Hong Kong, China, Taiwan, and Thailand, whose research is undertaken in the similar area and similar topic. And since last year, I organized panels with them at international conferences. So why I'm talking all about this is that because I want people who may be interested in studying about ethnic minorities. I mean, they were not ethnic minorities from the beginning. They became ethnic minorities because of all this border making by the empires, and but still they survived the empire's clash. So if anybody is interested in those projects, you know, I hope them to contact me and I can also continue talking about those things. So... These are the two things that I've been working on. Sounds like a, a great project. Look forward to talking to you about the next book one day, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I also have a side project. It's just so really funny, but I've been really, I mean, people know that I'm such a foodie that I, I love cooking and I love eating. So I've been writing about food culture in Southeast Asia in Korean language. And um, I just finished a manuscript about 25 dishes from Southeast Asia, and it will be published next year. <laughs> On the topic of Southeast Asian studies in Korea, how popular is it? What's the situation there now? Increasingly, there are more people, more and more people getting interested. It's just because there are a lot of Southeast Asian immigrants in South Korea now. So we call them like multicultural family or those um, who got married and settled in Korea. And they have children too. And those children are going to school. So um, multicultural family and the presence of the immigrants from Southeast Asia has increased the people's attention and interest in knowing more about Southeast Asia. In terms of academic activities, it's growing, but still it's pretty limited to the frame of ASEAN and the economic and cultural exchanges. Not many schools or universities teach history, unfortunately. They are still very much focused on the economic relations and cultural exchange, yeah. With that, I think we're going to have to uh, wind up. Uh, Sinead mm -hmm. Hyun, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. To discuss your new book, Indigenizing the Cold War, The Border Patrol Police and Nation Building in Thailand, published by University of Hawaii Press uh, this year, I think uh, just a couple of months ago.
Yes. Thank you for having me. And thank you for the opportunity to talk about my book. <laughs> and you've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in listening to other podcasts on books that deal with Thai politics during this period. In particular, Tongcha Winichagun's Moments of Silence, the prize-winning book, Moments of Silence, The Unforgetting of the October 6, 1976 Massacre in Bangkok, also published by University of Hawaii Press in 2020, or Greg Raymond's Thai Military Power, A Culture of Strategic Accommodation, published by NIAS Press in 2018. And you can download or stream this interview and thousands more free of charge via the New Books Network website or iTunes. Thank you.